welcome to Science and Fiction, where we delve into the possible and impossible. I am your co-host, Scott Shukin. I'm a comic book expert and reviewer, podcaster, sound engineer, and all-around geek. I'm also your co-host, Stephen Shukin. I'm a PhD student in chemistry at Stanford. I'm a self-identified nerd and Scott's twin brother. Once again, welcome to Science and Fiction. Here's how the show works. I will present Stephen with some crazy sci-fi concepts and explain where it comes from, and he's going to help us determine if it's at all possible, and if not, how we might fix it to make it possible. And then I will present Scott with a scientific fact, explain it a little bit, and then we're going to come up with a way to extrapolate that science into something fit for bona fide sci-fi. And neither of us have heard what the other is going to bring to the show, so our responses are totally improvised. Well, at least that's usually the case. Usually I bring something that Stephen hasn't seen because he's too busy doing things that contribute to society and the <laughs> better of humankind while I'm watching lots of Batman. But sometimes Batman's so big you can't get away from it. And today we are partway through our three-part series. We're going to talk about the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. And so today we're talking about The Dark Knight, which literally everybody has seen, including you, Stephen. Isn't that right? <laughs> that is right. That is a... Uh, uh uh inaccurate use of the word literally but yes it is it is correct i uh, haven't seen it in a long time though so i think we can still probably hit on some stuff i haven't thought about at least from a scientific perspective i certainly wasn't thinking about movies i usually don't think about movies scientifically critically but definitely not back when i saw dark knight which was probably when did it come out high school yeah 2008 yeah so i think it's still fresh i think it's still good all right so I have issues with the Christopher Nolan trilogy, partially because they're so well-respected. And while I think they're pretty good, there are a lot of things where I'm like, eh, Batman, eh. What, what do you mean partly because they're well-respected? you think they're overrated or they're, they're, they're overhyped for the integrity? Exactly. I, uh, I, think that, I think that they're really good movies, but part of it is they're, they're held up as these seminal ideas of what Batman is. And like they're the perfect adaptation of Batman when really they're a pretty unique adaptation of Batman, as really all movie versions of him have been. Yeah, it's interesting. The Dark Knight is my roommate Michael's favorite, number one favorite movie. It's a, re- it's a really good movie. Just yeah, objectively, it- from a movie perspective, it's great. Right. And Michael, of course, has no context uh, about what Batman is historically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's by the way, totally fine. It's, it's just – and this is only an issue like within the geeky community that spends too much time on the internet bitching at each other about stuff that don't matter. Uh, <laughs> where people, people hold these things up in a discussion about comic book Batman and be like, well, Christopher Nolan's version. And I'm like, well, that was just one movie, dude. Yeah. And that's a window into the psychosis of being a comic book geek and carry too much about stuff that don't matter, as I said before. Yeah. But anyway, I was expecting there to be a lot more issues with uh, The Dark Knight as we sort of went into with Batman Begins or a lot of silly things. And uh, when we get to Rises, there will be a lot of silly things. But this movie really doesn't overreach that much. By and large, it stays pretty grounded. Well, I'll be the judge of that. You know, I still haven't seen Dark Knight Rises. It's That's okay. <laughs> I, I think it is okay, and I also think, as we uh, mentioned before, it's good for the freshness of the show. Yes, it is. It is good. There are definitely a lot of things I'm explaining to you in that. You're going to be like, what? As you do. <laughs> I'm going to do the Stephen Shukin, what? I love that what. I, get, I feel satisfied every time it happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think there's going to be that. I, there's obviously not going to be that much of this because you've seen this movie um, maybe even right. more than once. 
Maybe. I, I saw this movie four times in theaters, by the way. Wow. While, while we're talking theaters? about me saying that, oh, well, it's not a great Batman movie, blah, blah, blah. I effing love this movie. It ignited something inside me. I wasn't a huge comic book fan yet when this movie came out, and it was a big part of my journey. Let's start with the small things, because there's these little things that I don't even know how much we can... It's not so much science as just a few little physics things that might depend more on... Well, let's just get into it. For example, in the very beginning, he stops a guy and he bends the barrel of his gun. Oh. With just, like, his fist. And it looks like there's some gadget on his fist, but it's really unclear what it's doing. Yeah, I mean, Batman doesn't have super strength, right? Exactly. And so it's the kind of thing where I'm like, can we can we judge the physics of this when the figures are so big? Yeah, going beyond the the going beyond the the, the physics, does it, does he ever do that kind of thing in uh, comic books? Probably. Bending bending the bending metal or bending I mean the, the barrel of a gun is more than just metal. I mean, it's sturdy. It's very it's it's short for one. It's not like a long bar. Yeah, there's some sound effect, but it's kind of dark, and it looks like there's, like I said, there's something on his fist that maybe is assisting him, and I'm sure I've seen gadgets like that in in comics, or there have been in comics that I haven't seen, because there's a lot of Batman out there. I actually have a friend who works uh, in a research group here at Stanford, and met another person who works at a company that does this, making super suits, or exoskeletons. Um, They're called both. And what they are, are basically apparel that you wear where the joints have motors that aid you in your movement. And so if Batman had, you know, really advanced uh, exoskeleton gloves that could apply way more torque than he could, then maybe it would be strong enough to bend metal. But this is a real thing that's going on um, for stroke victims, but also for super soldiers, for the military, for paraplegics and things like that. That sounds like what they're getting at in the movie, which I guess maybe I'm hung up on this less about the event actually taking place and more the fact that he never uses this cool exoskeleton super strength thing ever again once. (laughs) It seemed like it would come in handy. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of little stuff like that. Um, the, The big one that that really comes to mind is they call it the sky hook. He has to extract somebody from a skyscraper in Hong Kong. And the way that Batman does this is he uses, I guess it was this program that was meant to extract spies in the 80s that never quite worked. Hmm. Attached to his utility belt is this big old balloon attached to a cable. And so Batman takes this guy he's trying to capture and he sends the balloon out the window and up into the sky. It is this big old balloon. And then a jet an airplane, like a, the size of a cargo plane, flies overhead, hooks onto the balloon, and yanks Batman and this guy out of the building. What? What kind of balloon are we... How big is the balloon? It looks like a small hot air balloon. How, wait, wait. <laughs> hot air balloons are very big. So how right. small are we talking? So, like, like, maybe half the size of a hot air balloon when you picture it. But still, like, a good, like, ten feet or something. Yeah, it's still a really big balloon. But Interesting. not as big as hot air balloons because those are really, really big balloons. Okay, what's the setting here? They're outdoors? They're in a skyscraper in Hong Kong. They're in a, How does he have an air balloon in a skyscraper? Well, the idea is that the balloon is really, really tightly compacted, I would imagine, and then uh-huh. he, he expands it 
when he needs to because he like he's inflates Batman. it out the window outside the window yeah yeah he he puts oh. he shoots these this like explosive gel onto the window and sets it on a timer so he's exactly where he needs to be when he needs to be the glass blows he shoots the window out the back and then the jet flies overhead he escapes like batman interesting so a jet hooks up to an air balloon and carries them away yeah that sounds dangerous <laughs> yeah it sounds to me like it would snap one or both of their necks especially the guy who's not batman who's not wearing a reinforced cowl or anything i'm not even thinking about i'm thinking about like how like <laughs> i'm imagining a, a plane dragging a air balloon that's basically like a parachute it's like flapping in the wind because it's being pulled at a much higher speed by a plane. A plane has to be going very fast to even well, take off. The the plane isn't dragging the balloon. The balloon, like, hooks onto the front of the plane and it drags Batman. What do you mean it hooks onto the front of the plane? The front of the plane has this little apparatus to sort of grab the bottom of the balloon. Uh-huh. So it's almost like the balloon is a giant grappling hook. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yes. Also, it would snap their necks. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay. I watched Jackass 2 recently, and that, that's the kind of thing <laughs> that I would see in that. Hey, I'm Batman, and this is Jackass. <laughs> and this is Plane Balloon. <laughs> okay, so that, one's, that one is super ridiculous. Now, this next one, this is, this is more tech-based than science-based. Mm -hmm. But the idea is to find a suspect... Uh, somebody tries to shoot the mayor because it's Gotham City. And that's what it's like to be the mayor in Gotham. Who is the mayor of Gotham? Is that a person that has a recognizable name that I would know? Uh, not that you would know. Very often in the comics, Mayor Haiti is the name, H-A-D-Y. Mm -hmm. uh, in the movies... Is that supposed no... to be like Hades? Is that a reference? Not as far as I know. Yeah. Um... In the Nolan movies, there's no mayor in Batman Begins, and Nestor Carbonell, uh, whom you might know as that guy who looks like he's always wearing eyeliner, is uh, the mayor without a name in Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Hmm. Okay. But anyway, he's getting shot at, because again, Gotham yeah. mayor. Right. And so to find the suspect, there is a, there's a bullet embedded in the wall near the shooting. Okay. But it's not just the bullet. The bullet fragmented when it hit the wall. So a bunch of fragments are in this brick. And Batman carves the whole brick out of the wall. Mm -hmm. He then shoots a bunch of bricks with a bunch of different guns to find the same fragment pattern that would occur. And then using that information, it reverse engineers the fragments of the bullet in the original brick to find a fingerprint... That was on the bullet what? when the shooter pushed oh, man. the bullet into the clip. I was so ready to give this like a sort of okay rating. A fingerprint. And that's the part where it all falls apart. Is yeah. the idea that the fingerprint would be on any of this stuff still. Oh my gosh. They really had to take it the extra. You could It couldn't just be like a brand of bullet that only this guy has or something like that. It had to be his fingerprint on the bullet. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's very silly. I, I can't see how that would even be possible, that, that a fingerprint, uh, you know, I think it would uh, rub off or 
at least not be, you know, this is actually a, a true story, which is that fingerprints are not as unique as people trust them to be. You need, if you use a fingerprint to identify someone, it's not always 100% precise. Yeah, I actually learned that recently. I think it was on an episode of like last week tonight or something, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. But yeah, I mean, dusting for fingerprints, even with like a nice, you know, with a nice fingerprint that uh, a perp laid on a car, for example, isn't always easy or perfect on a bullet. I mean, absolutely not. That's 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 way out. I don't know. I would I would rather see like uh, someone extract DNA from the bullet fragments and sequence it. Interesting. How how do you, how would DNA get on the bullet fragment from the shooter? If the if he if he touched it with his uh, hands enough for there to be a fingerprint, then there should be some skin cells on there. There probably wouldn't be enough to sequence it in real life, but maybe in Batman's world, the sequencing technology has gotten advanced enough that it's more sensitive. That's fair. They could. I would definitely buy that because we've got dudes like Mister Freeze making super science stuff and Man Bat turning himself into a you know Man Bat. Exactly. But my issue, though, with the skin cell thing is do the skin cells stay on the bullet after it's been fired? Because there's an explosion in the gun that fires the bullet. Yeah, that's a good point. It would Wouldn't probably damage the cells and the, and the DNA too much. That's a great point. And, and it would also obviously melt the uh, it would also melt the fingerprint, which is really where we get into trouble. I imagine the fingerprint having more trouble when it hits the brick. And getting rubbed off that way, but as soon as there's that explosion, you're screwed. Right, that's what I was thinking too, is that the, the fingerprint's just not there anymore. One yeah. way or another. Yeah, good luck. The This next one's a little weird, because it's more, how long can a guy live with a phone bomb inside of him? A phone bomb? I don't know. Man, you really don't remember this movie that well. No, I really don't. There's a guy who is arrested... And taken into the GCPD holdup. Uh-huh. And he's complaining about something being in his insides. And I was insides hurt. And uh, the Gotham cops don't care because they're Gotham cops. Right. Meanwhile, the Joker is being interrogated by Jim Gordon and or Batman. And he keeps saying that he just wants a phone call or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when he finally does get his phone call, he calls a cell phone that is inside this criminal's body. Oh, and it yeah. explodes the GCPD holdup. And the Joker escapes. Oh, I do remember that. That's that's really interesting. I think that one could work. Yeah, that one seems like it would be able to work to me, but I, I really know so little about how much a body can live with a phone in it. Yeah, I mean, I think it could live for... Well, it depends where where in your body the phone is. Like, I imagine the guy putting it up his butt, that would be the best way. But yeah, but you see it through yeah. his stomach in the movie, and I think the implication is maybe some surgery was even done. Oh, that's interesting. No, I mean, I think if if uh, if the surgery were were done, um, you know, really with really good technique and antiseptically and everything, I think that it would be able to last in there, you know, for a day for sure. Because people people put stuff in their bodies all the time that are not supposed to be there, and they you know end up feeling weird and going to the ER, but they totally survive. It's no problem. I mean, you know, plastic. Your body doesn't even see plastic; like it doesn't even care. So, um, yeah, it could totally you could totally live for at least a day with a phone inside you. The question yeah, the is, human could you body like? Is resilient. Yeah, it, it's really resilient. The question is, 
how did they get it in there? Like if he swallowed a phone, that would be so painful and maybe physically impossible to do for it to have enough payload in there to actually bomb anything, which the energy density is another question. Yeah, that's part of, I think, the implication of surgery. Is, yeah. Uh, and also, the dude is in excruciating pain the entire time you see him in the scene. Yeah. Um, like, he's brought in... Yeah, like, I mean, if you're going to do it... If you're going to surgically implant it, it doesn't even have to be in his stomach. Like, there are plenty... There's just space around your organisms. I get, I think it's called the, um, the peritoneum. It's just basically space uh, around your organs that you could just put, put in there. Okay. So that one checks out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Although like I, I would be curious to one. Yeah, I would be curious to see how much, you know, there's there's a great scene, and by great I mean scientifically hilarious scene that we always talk about in my in my apartment uh, from Breaking Bad. Walter White walks into this room where there's a crystal meth dealer, and he has a crystal of what looks like crystal meth, but is in fact fulminated mercury, and he throws the crystal to the ground, and a giant explosion explodes the windows out of the room. And it's hilarious, because no no crystal of anything that small will blow up an entire room. And, uh, and it, that's just one perfect example of how energy density is totally ignored. So we always like to mimic throwing our, like, you know, a little bit of salt on the ground and, like, exploding the entire room. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You know what that sounds like to me? What? That sounds like some Batman nonsense. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Throwing a little little crystallized mercury down and using it as a smoke bomb. Yeah. It is explosive, though. I mean, to their credit, it's it's pretty cool. The one that I like is uh, um, nitrogen triiodide. It's really easy to make. You just take ammonia and iodine and mix it together and it makes this um, substance that when it's wet it's not explosive but if you let it dry then touch it with a feather and it'll explode and make this uh purple smoke you should you should uh google that um nitrogen triiodide and then don't do it and then don't do it we are not telling you to do that we're just telling you to look it up watch the video yeah watch the video of somebody else doing it in a controlled setting that's right I had a friend who actually made nitrogen triiodide once, and I think it went fine. He did it for uh, a demo for some kids that were visiting Cal. And, but it's, people were so sketched out about him making this in a few months. I mean, people get really scared about this kind of thing. And it reminded me that he, this same guy had a story where we're taught in organic chemistry class that uh, palladium will react with air and catch fire. And he was in a research lab and he was using palladium and his mentor, who was a grad student, said, oh, no, that's that's BS. Like, just throw it in the trash. It'll be fine. And so he threw it in the trash and walked away. And there was a fire. It started a fire because it ignited in the trash. Um, so uh, so quench your palladium, everyone. Wow. Terrible advice from that mentor. So bad. So stupid. Really bad. Yeah. So, yeah, even even the experts don't play with chemicals, kids. Yeah, I mean, that guy wasn't really... He was like a second-year grad student. He wasn't really an expert. Yeah, chump. <laughs> Sounds like an idiot to me. Second-year grad student, second that's Second-year PhD all. student in chemistry at Berkeley. What a, what a chump. What a chump. No, go Bears. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to Batman. Yeah. One last thing, and this is the big thing that... Not only is it like the big cool look at our big Batman thing at the end of the movie, they also make a really big deal of it in the movie in a way that I don't totally get because, you know, he's Batman. The sonar 3D video thing. Do you remember this? No. 
there's a device that Lucius Fox develops that basically turns cell phones into a little sonar receiver, I guess. Mm. And so back at the Batcave, using whatever cell phones they patch into, not just cell phones, anything with a microphone, I guess, can get a sonar reading, so they basically have a 3D readout right. of the room they're in. They use this in the beginning in Hong Kong, just with one phone that they plant, um, and that's the scene that ends with them leaving the building by getting yanked by a jet. Remind me, so they turn every phone into a sonar receiver, and then and then is the idea that they're using the fact that there are multiple phones in a room to get the sonar kind of readout of the room to get the image? Yeah, well, that's the idea, that, again, in the beginning, they just use one to sort of get a little bit of the room, and at the end, they use everything in the city to basically give Batman a video game-like 3D map of the city. Right. And Lucius Fox make a, makes a really big deal about it being really unethical and inhumane and, like, he's spying on everyone, which isn't necessarily wrong. Yeah, I'm imagining Batman just, like, like watching, like, a woman undress via sonar. Like, hey, hey. <laughs> like <laughs> that's what he's going to use his powers for. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's not really Batman. There's also something to be said that's about... That's not really... That's not really his character. Yeah, I also, there's a great line in The Dark Knight Returns uh, that Superman actually says to Batman, which is, come on, Bruce, we're criminals, we've always been criminals. Hmm. And I like that acknowledgement of these vigilantes are criminals. They are breaking the law and going outside the system because the system doesn't work. So yeah, they're they're kind of, Batman's kind of a fascist, is I guess what I'm trying to get at. Well, I don't know about that. Fascists are all about the rule of law. Right, what I'm saying is, but fascists dictate their own rule of law. They're right. judge, jury, and executioner. And if you disagree with them, you could get out or you can have your legs broken. And that's that is... Batman's rule in Gotham. Yes. But anyway, let's let's not discuss the fascism of Batman right now, because that's a whole separate podcast on its own. Mm-hmm. The fascism of Batman. The podcast. And let's just talk about the practicality of wirelessly accessing all of the phones and microphones in the city to create a 3D readout of all the buildings. And not just that, but send that readout to wirelessly to Batman's cowl so he can see it in real time as he's looking around. Yeah, there are so many things wrong with this. The first thing is sonar works way better in water than in air. That's why it's used in submarines and not, you know... In other places. But, but what about bats? <laughs> bats are good, kind of they... the whole idea. Yeah, right. Is that Interesting. he's a Batman. Yeah. When I think about a sonar device, I think about... You get one piece of information, which is there's an item and it's X meters away. And so you need data over time or you need multiple sonar devices in order to triangulate that signal and get more information. So the idea that a single microphone would be be able to tell you about everything in the room is crazy unless that microphone is in fact a million microphones on the surface of a sphere that is getting readouts all around it. And even then the accuracy wouldn't be that good. So not Interesting. 
So I think the the way that they see it, and I see why this is the kind of thing you would think without really knowing how it works, mm-hmm. is that it each individual microphone and speaker set or whatever, you know, each phone, gets the sphere around it. Yeah, exactly. As far as so, the information that it's gathering. Yeah, I used the word triangulate before, and what I meant by that is that if you have, you know, if I know how far an object is away from me, and if you know how far it is away from you, and we know where we are in relation to each other, then we have more information about where that thing is than me just knowing it's 100 yards away. And then if there's another person, then we can lock it down perfectly. And so if you have multiple, multiple, this is, you know, typically used for cell towers and for GPS and things like that, then you can locate something perfectly, but just one microphone wouldn't tell you anything. But we're not dealing with just one. We're dealing with the whole city's worth. But didn't you say that at the beginning they use one microphone just to get an idea of the room? That's true. In the beginning they do that uh, in the tower in Hong Kong. So that one falls apart. Yeah. I mean, this seems just totally unnecessary. It seems like there should be another way. Like you you should be able to use satellites and x-rays or... Using let's, just let's go cameras. back to the bat metaphor, though, because you're saying okay. that like you you would need a, yeah. a bunch of a bunch of microphones and a bunch of speakers or whatever to to get send and receive the information. But again, one bat can can sort of see the sphere around it. Like it doesn't need to know to triangulate just to know this wall is ten feet away from me and that wall is twenty feet away from me, and I know that that's to the right and that that's to the left, and thus I know where the walls in this room are. As I understand it, how bat echolocation works is that a bat can aim its scream at any place right in front of it. And so it actually is scanning around it all the time to get the image rather than just using one sound and its ears somehow being able to tell where the echoes are coming from. So it constructs an image. It's more like it scans left to right and figures out that there's a stalactite right in front of its face or maybe a bit to the left or a bit to the right. Well, then let's assume that the microphones are doing that because we're dealing with a digital system, right? It could be doing that very quickly going in maybe not a full sphere, but at least a 360 pattern Hmm. every, you know, one hundredth of a second changing by one or two degrees. Yeah, I think that makes sense. There's just something about the idea that all objects in a room would be reflecting sound in a similar enough way that you would get a high fidelity image that bothers me. It may be right. That but is it, a it really just good bothers point. me. Yeah. In my background when I when I started in, in college besides reading a lot of comic books was sound engineering. And so part of that was setting up some speakers and that's a really good point that the crispness that we're sort of describing is kind of impossible to get. Yeah. Unless you're just in an empty cube. Yeah, so you might have something soft in the room that looks like just a hole in the wall because you're not getting any bounce back. But could the one phone system from the first act of the movie work provided you had hours to gather information and it was in a still location? That's another question is whether there are sound frequencies that penetrate through people well enough or through a person's pocket or something, but not through walls so that you get an image of the room without the sonar being obstructed by whatever the wherever the phone is. Because it's in people's pockets, right? It's is actually, it a cell phone thing? now that you mention it, it's in a drawer. 
Yeah. So it should just see a box around it. You just it. see a little box. <laughs> it's, it's in a drawer. We have verified that this bone is in a drawer. <laughs> yeah. So you have all the drawers in the city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's like, it, you know, it's sort of like a C minus. It's like, I get it. And, and because of this scanning idea, I think it could work to an extent. But practically, uh, the, the soft versus hard object issue and, and the fact that the phone would have to be position in a good way so that it can see quote unquote the whole room you know wouldn't wouldn't really give you a, a movie a video game like map i gotta say i think that that c minus is kind of the sweet spot for sci-fi though especially yeah. with characters like batman yeah yeah that's where you want to be passable but still fantastic yeah i like that c's get degrees sci-fi writers <laughs> trust me sci-fi writers know that already yeah <laughs> Fair point. That's that's actually not a fair point. There are plenty of sci-fi writers who are actually good writers who studied English and stuff and aren't just, like, geeks. Yeah, that's a good point. Most of them, really. All of them are qualified writers if they're, you know, writers. All right, well, that's all I've got for Batman, at least for today. I've always got more Batman to talk about. So uh, let's learn us some science. Yeah. My science fact today is very simple. The science fact is that scientists last year found seven planets orbiting a star only 40 light years away, which is very close compared to most other exoplanets we've we've observed. And three to six of them, depending on your definition, are within the habitable zone, meaning they're at a sort of temperature and elemental composition that's suitable for life to exist. It's called TRAPPIST-1. That's the name of the solar system. And TRAPPIST-1d is my favorite planet in the solar system. It's my favorite because of the temperature. So the equilibrium temperature, which is sort of just like the average temperature on the planet, is 60, to be more precise, 58.7 degrees Fahrenheit. So it gets hotter, it gets warmer, but this is a planet that, I mean, you know, it's like Alaska. And, okay, I was going to say, to contextualize that, what is the equilibrium temperature of Earth? 58 degrees, which is only one degree lower. So it's essentially the same. Wow, so, like, we're going to be the same in, like, a couple months. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, and this this solar system, as I mentioned, is pretty close. And, you know, even though it's not close in terms of, like, getting an astronaut there, it's a lot better than what we've seen before. So the fastest spacecraft that humans have ever been able to launch was called the Juno. And it slingshot around Jupiter to travel at 165,000 miles per hour. So that's probably not livable for an astronaut, but just bear with me. And if you were able to ride on something like that, then you would arrive on TRAPPIST-1D after only about 70,000 years. So not possible tomorrow, but a lot faster or, or a lot closer than what we've seen before. Okay, okay. Now this this one's actually a little hard for me as far as extrapolating into sci-fi, just because it's not that unique, honestly. Yeah. The just idea they're existing of, a planet with, with life. Yeah, yeah. The idea of there being a planet with life on it is something that you just create without people questioning it in a sci-fi world. Yeah, when, that's interesting. When Star Wars opens with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, they don't go also, by the way... This galaxy is full of planets for whom the equilibrium temperature is about 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. You know, we don't need that from George Lucas. 
yeah. we're okay with it. We've got droids that beep and talk to each other and yet both understand each other perfectly. But that's because people from Earth don't go to the galaxy that Star Wars takes place in. Right, that's fair. But even in Futurama, when there's a university on Mars, we're not like, why can they breathe on Mars? We're like, eh, it's Futurama. Right, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, I wonder... Hmm, yeah, I guess Futurama is technically, even though it's silly, is taking place in the same universe as the one we live in, in a way. Yeah, which actually, maybe we should look at some Futurama episodes. There's definitely going to be some stuff in there. Yeah, for sure. It occurs to me now there are a few specific elements they name drop in the episode that's always on TV, even though it's the saddest episode ever. Yeah. Um, which we might be able to talk about. Yeah. It makes me think, though, that you might try to write a more um, serious or quote-unquote realistic sci-fi story, something that we're really envisioning our future rather than a fantasy future. Right. And that's, you know, a lot of our conversations go this way, where you would take this real thing put it into a sci-fi world that wouldn't necessarily need it and make it feel a little more accessible and real, especially people who know the science. Yeah. You know, if they were to actually mention the solar system and you were to read this book, you'd be like, oh, that's a neat thing. But I was actually thinking of going in a different direction, a little more of a narrative direction. Okay. Because the way you described this solar system, it sounded not even similar to ours because we just have one planet that can support life. Mm Mm-hmm. But you sort of you sort of painted this picture of this ideal system for life. Yeah, interesting. Right? As far as as far as things in space go, and what I started to picture in my mind is the concept of a ghost town. Hmm. Not not this system that is ready for life, but maybe maybe the system had life and now it's all gone, and that's some questions we can ask. You know, it's almost it almost reminds me of like a Michael Crichton ish story. Where they would go somewhere and be like, oh, where are these arrogant humans who thinks we're the first ones here and then realize there's a reason why nobody's alive here anymore? Right. Is that, that's kind of a Planet of the Apes thing, right? Yeah, yeah. that was one of the first things I thought of was very Planet of the Apes. Or What I was actually thinking when I was talking about Michael Crichton was the, the book Sphere, mm-hmm. which I guess they did make a movie of too, which that takes place under the ocean, but that's a similar thing where their sort of arrogance gets them. I've never heard of that. What killed. is that? Briefly. Uh, it's, I sort of, that's basically it. There's this strange thing under the ocean, this strange sphere that a team of scientists go down, uh, to examine and things begin to go awry and begin to happen strangely. And, uh, this sphere does not behave like anything that humans have ever seen. Interesting. It's a good book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Michael Crichton fan, so I think that his books in general, so then, good. so then, off the top of your head, what would be the thing? What would be the reason that there's no life on these planets anymore? Some sort of plague, I guess, if you're going to make me come up with something off the top of my head, because that's the easiest. Space plague. Space plague, yeah. If there is an antagonist of some sort in the story, however, you know, our characters, because of its proximity to Earth, I would assume our protagonists would be from Earth or of Earth in some way. Yeah. Um, so, so if there's some villain, they could be connected to either the ancient civilizations on the solar system that are somehow buried and or connected to why there's no more life. Coincidentally, there was a uh, story that my roommate and I concocted based on this paper when we saw it came out last year. And we did consider that there would be something that would annihilate, you know, the life on this on these planets. But we didn't think it would be a um, a plague. We thought it would just be the 
hubris of that species' own intelligence and self-centeredness, that it would sort of be a parable for the human race, that you get there and it's a ghost town, and it wasn't a plague, it was just the relentless consumption of the resources that happened with the last intelligent life that was there. Right, and that's um, that's definitely a theme that we see in a lot of sci-fi. Really? And that's, yeah, yeah, The I mean, the idea of of Godzilla, one of the most classic, you know, sci-fi slash fantasy uh, monsters is that we've disrespected the Earth and Godzilla is its protector. Interesting. I never knew that about Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of, that's why every Godzilla movie gets criticized for having some sort of forced ecological message. And it always bothers me because to me that is where Godzilla comes from. And like, that's just an inherent part of the story. That's the a big part of the kaiju myth. Hmm. I totally did not know that. So he's actually, he really is trying to protect Earth from humans. He's not just a, a crazed monster that was some accident of pollution. Yeah, yeah, we did this ourselves. I mean, it, him being an accident of pollution is sort of symbolically right. what you described. Yeah. So, yes, it's it's all sort of falls into the same thing, though, where he's he's a product of our own hubris. Yeah. I could also see the this sort of ghost town solar system being a portent of things to come, right? Hmm. Something has killed everything here, and maybe it's on its way to Earth. Right. Right, because it's so close, we're next. Makes me think of Dragon Ball Z. Oh, yeah? Which, uh, what, what are you thinking from Dragon Ball? I was thinking about Dragon Ball Z because Vegeta, I think before he comes to Earth, well, I guess it's not Earth, but before he comes, is it Earth? I think it's Earth. Okay. Before he comes, Earth. yeah. Before he comes to Earth, I think that the Saiyans have gone around and enslaved. I can't remember whether it's slavery or mining for resources, but he's gone from planet to planet. And then when he arrives on Earth, you know, that you know, uh, Goku knows that he's a bad dude. He's not going to let him do it. But it's sort of, I guess, Goku doesn't hasn't seen the other planets. But I don't know. The audience maybe has. I'm also conflating this with Invincible. I realize. Yeah, I'm not sure, because I know Goku doesn't really know anything about the Saiyans, because he's like, who are you? And Vegeta's like, you're Kakarot, the prince. And he's like, carrots? What? Yeah. I'm surprised at how much uh, Invincible and, and Dragon Ball are overlapping right now. I don't know, this is very interesting to our audience. It's a pretty, pretty niche conversation we've gotten ourselves into. Well, what you t- I mean, this is also, this is, this is my bread and butter, so I'll say it's really quickly. Of course, the overlap, they're both just Superman. For, for I mean, our audience, in, my brain is exploding. Invincible, to be fair, is the son of Superman a little more than Superman. Right. But it's it's the same story. It's it's the, the, the lone alien of their species on Earth. And because they're on Earth, they are super. They are special. They are unlike everybody else around them. They are Goku. They are Superman. They are literally invincible. Was Superman's... Uh, were, the, were his ancestors evil? No. Okay, because that's a difference between um, that story and the Invincible and and uh, and Dragon Ball Z thing. Yeah, and in, in Invincible, that's very much the twist of sort of the first story arc is that the dad that is Superman is is from sort of an evil race right. that's not as all dead as we thought. Spoilers for Invincible, but you know, it's been around for a while. It's been a minute. You should it's read great. it. It's great. Yes, it's really good. Read it, everyone. I love it, and I don't even read a lot of comic books, but I really love it. 
Um, but yeah, that's a good point that Superman came from, you know, just some desperate parents who wanted to save their son because they couldn't save themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, Goku and Invincible, all the all the ripoffs of Superman add something to him, you know? Yeah. it's There's so many stories that you could describe as Superman, but this instead. Do you, how do you react to the, 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 the likenesses people draw between Superman and Jesus? Uh... I don't really know what you mean by that question. I guess I like, mean... how do I react? So, so I, I hear the likeness, and I would imagine someone like you who really knows the story of Superman to be like, okay, it's really not that similar. There isn't really that much overlap. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot of universal constants in the stories that we tell, and yeah. that that there are a lot of similarities because I really think, to a certain degree, Superman and Jesus are similar figures within the stories from which they come. Mm. You know, that yeah. that at the very least, both of them both kind of boil down to the idea of no matter what, they're going to do the right thing. Yeah. That's that's how, like, when you're writing a Superman story, it's real easy to figure out what Superman is going to do next as long as you ask yourself the question, what's the right thing to do here? Mm. That's what Superman does. And if you were to write a story about Jesus, that would be how I would approach him, too. Yeah, right. You know, so I think they are, you know, I I see mythology and religion as very much stories we tell to teach lessons. Not necessarily that different from nursery rhymes. Comics are a little weird because they're like a modern mythology that are still being written and there's a certain capitalist aspect that makes them a little different. Mm, yeah. But when you just begin a story from the idea of I'm going to create this figure to look up to that's going to teach kids how to be a good person you're going to hit some common notes. Yeah, definitely. I, the, and the, I, yeah, keep going. And I think, honestly, there's something really profound about the fact that all of these stories, to a certain extent, are immigrant stories. Wow, that's, a, that, that's very true. That's very interesting. You know, maybe not Jesus is as much, but there's uh, still a lot to be said about him feeling like a lost son. Yeah, I mean, he came literally from heaven. I mean, that definitely he's definitely foreign and different. Exactly, exactly. You know, Superman is an alien who has to hide who he is. Uh, and, and Superman has the benefit of looking like humans, and nobody looks at him and says, hey, you're a freak. Uh, and so, you know, these these immigrant metaphors also need other layers to be more representative. Um, but but still, these are very much immigrant stories. Yeah. I... Our, our, uh, even though we're twin brothers, our audience might be interested to learn that um, we are two white guys, but I have 0.2% genes from Eastern and Northern Africa, and Scott did not get those genes. We both did 23 did and me. And, uh, we both did, and uh, it's really neat that as twins, we're not identical, obviously, Yeah. Um, as you're learning from the different DNA thing. But, uh, yeah, how you could be so close, but still, there's so much DNA and history behind us. Yeah. Yeah, we're, um, we're white in so many different ways. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all immigrants and outsiders one way or another. The, the uh, not idea... necessarily everybody. There are natives in a lot of different places. Yeah, yes. Um, there, the, the idea of, of universal stories is so interesting to me. And I started thinking about this when I went to a Native American ceremony with my friend, Glendon, and he was remarking that every human culture in history has music. And I've been sort of musing about why that might be, but also thinking about how 
when the human mind, when the human body really stopped evolving pretty much about, you know, 10,000 BC when the agricultural revolution happened, that's sort of our snapshot in time as a biological species. And so anatomically, you and I are very similar to humans that existed 15,000 years ago. And the idea that a human brain was capable of the same complexity and depth of thought that I am now 15,000 years ago, I think helps me to explain where all these stories and mythologies come from. It seems like the human brain is constantly naturally searching for meaning in everything. Right. I think that there's a lot of, uh, and I think there's a lot of really good stories that sort of look at, again, sort of go back to the idea of this solar system doesn't have life. They look at things that sort of raise questions of like, how did this happen this way? And then come up with a fake reason why. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and a lot of those are uh, stories that sort of explain why there are really similar figures in almost every religion, mm. you know? And, and I think the real answer is you back before we had science all across the world, humans looked up at the sky, saw lightning and were frightened and needed to come up with a reason why it was there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's, that to me is where religion comes from. And that's why there's always a God of lightning. You know, that's why there's a God of the harvest to explain that there's just a lot of chance in farming and sometimes stuff just doesn't work. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you look at a flood coming and washing away half your town, part of you really wants to go, okay, that's probably because I did this bad thing yesterday. That's, that's on me. You know, there's right. a reason and for this. And when you look at something that's that impactful and horrifying and you ask the question, how and why could this happen? It's, it's scary to think, eh, no reason, might happen again tomorrow. Yeah, right. You know, you want to tell yourself that there's something you something can do you can to prevent do. this when there's not. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. Well, clearly, we have drifted. I think it is maybe time for us to get out of here yeah. now that we're talking about we, Superman and religion and all that. We got deep. This, by the way, this is my bread and butter. This is why I love podcasting about comics and stuff is that this is how uh, meaningful these things are to me so thank you for indulging us yeah it's art this evening yeah it's, it's evening for me interpreting art yeah it's evening for us who knows what you're doing maybe you're in your car on your way to work maybe you're just maybe you're at the lab maybe you're one of my maybe. friends <laughs> um so let's uh yeah let's sign this thing out thank you so much for listening to science and fiction once again, I'm your co-host, Stephen Shukin. This episode was recorded in Palo Alto, California and Bellingham, Washington, and was produced and edited by none other than Scott Shukin. And I am also your co-host, Scott Shukin. As always, Science and Fiction can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at SciAndFic and email us at scienceandfictionpod at gmail.com. That's all one word. Feel free to message us with any questions or suggestions, and come back next week for more of The Possible and Impossible. There are definitely a lot of things I'm explaining to you in that. You're going to be like, what? As you do. <laughs> I'm going to do the Stephen Shukin. What? I love that what. I, get, I feel satisfied every time it happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.